We're going to be in Revelation 13 and 14 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you want to get over to Revelation 13. We'll spend most of our morning in chapter 13, a little bit of the morning in chapter 14. As I have walked through the book of Revelation over the last several weeks, a few people have asked me why I have not yet talked about the Left Behind books. Uh, And uh, some of you I know have read them. There were, I think, 16 of these, at least 16 in the original series, and then there have been spinoffs. They've sold millions and millions of copies. This was a 25th anniversary edition from a couple years ago that uh, it says right there on the cover, over 9 million sold. That's just of that volume. Over the 16 volumes, I think they sold something like 65 million copies, one of the best-selling series of books uh, probably in history. I don't really know. The reason I haven't talked about them, though, is because I have to admit, I haven't read them all. Uh, I started reading them when they came out uh, in the 90s, and yet by the time they got to, say, number six or number seven, I had started seminary already, and I had a lot of other things to read. And none of my professors put the Left Behind books on their syllabi for the classes. So uh, I never finished them, so I don't necessarily feel qualified to talk a lot about their theology or what's in them. They are works of fiction. But again, I recognize they're hugely popular. Movies have been made based on these books. The most recent one just came out a few years ago, starring Nicolas Cage, the Left Behind movie. I did not see this either. I don't think, okay, it's getting hissed. Uh, I must not have been great. Uh, I don't think a lot of people saw it, actually. Um, And uh, it didn't get great reviews. It was neither commercially nor artistically successful, uh, as I was saying to somebody between services. Uh, One of the reviews of it on Rotten Tomatoes.com says this, yea, verily, like unto a plague of locusts, Left behind hath begat a further scourge of devastation upon Nicolas Cage's once proud filmography. Uh, So I've not seen it. It might be a great movie, but I like that review and just really wanted to share that with you this morning, if nothing else. Uh, But the reason I bring them up now at this point in the book of Revelation is because I am aware that for a lot of people, your first exposure to end times theology or to the book of Revelation might have been through those books or through other books like The Late Great Planet Earth or uh, the movie I mentioned at the beginning of the series, A Thief in the Night, that was made in the 70s. And especially, a lot of people have uh, gotten their ideas of the Antichrist, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, from these books or other books like them. In fact, this week, as I was telling some of our staff, we're going to talk about Revelation 13 this week, which talks about the Antichrist. And as I was telling them that, uh, one of them said, hey, I know who it is. His name is Nikolai Carpathia, uh, because that's the main Antichrist figure in the Left Behind books. And I said, well, we're not going to name him. We don't know who he is, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But The fact that the Bible doesn't tell us who he is has not stopped people throughout history from trying to name him, from trying to guess who he is. So if you read the writings of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, guys like that, they were certain that the Antichrist was the Pope, the Roman Catholic Pope. If you fast forward a few hundred years and you read the writings of Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, he said Napoleon Bonaparte was the Antichrist. 
Go forward a little further into the time of World War II in the 20th century, and a lot of people said Adolf Hitler is the Antichrist. Just this past week, I ran across articles on the internet written in in the last decade suggesting that either Barack Obama or Donald Trump was the Antichrist. And uh, whether or not you felt one or the other was the Antichrist largely depended upon one's political persuasion. Uh, People have tried for centuries to speculate, to guess, who is this person? The scripture doesn't tell us. Revelation 13 doesn't tell us. However, the fact that we don't know who he is doesn't mean that he is not real. The scripture is clear that the Antichrist is coming. And we're going to talk about that this morning, that during the tribulation period, there will be a world leader who will emerge and he will be empowered by Satan, empowered by the dragon. And his whole purpose is to undermine and destroy God's people and God's plan and to try to imitate God's power. It's not just the book of Revelation that predicts that the Antichrist is coming one day. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, John says this. He says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. So John says, hey, we're getting close to the time of the end, and so you've heard the Antichrist is coming, this person who's going to set himself up in opposition to God, and he's going to set himself up, in fact, we'll see in a minute, as God. But I want you also to notice what John says. He says, even now, a lot of Antichrists have come. That is that all throughout history, there have been rulers, there have been leaders, there have been teachers who have opposed God who have lied and who have deceived and who have tried to set themselves up uh, as gods to lead people astray. So that this is maybe why all through history we see different figures in history and we go, maybe that's the Antichrist, maybe that's the Antichrist. Because what we're gonna see as we talk about the Antichrist this morning and the false prophet from Revelation 13, this is really important, what we're gonna see is that Satan is going to use basically the same strategies that he always uses, the same types of deceptions that he always uses to lead people away from God. And so that's why there is leader after leader after leader in history who could fit that mold. But we also know that at the end, in this seven-year tribulation period, before Christ's millennial kingdom, there will come one leader who is sort of a culmination, an intensification, a final effort by Satan to undermine God's plan and God's people. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So here you're gonna have this leader before the day of the Lord, before Jesus returns, who will exalt himself, who will oppose God, and who will imitate God so that people will worship him as God. And so the scripture's clear, this person is coming. That's what we're gonna see in Revelation 13, and 14, and to remind you of where we are in our flow of end times history. Again, I mentioned it. We're in this great tribulation period now of seven years. 
This is the final week of Daniel 9, where God is working with the nation of Israel to draw them to Jesus so they, they receive their Messiah, but also people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are trusting in Jesus. At the same time, there's judgments being cast upon the, the earth on the unbelieving world. All of these judgments we've been talking about, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, which are still to come. In the midst of all this chaos is when the dragon is thrown to earth. We saw that in Revelation chapter 12. And then he raises up this antichrist and a false prophet. And they will make sort of what's called an unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth to try to mimic God, but also to usurp God. And what what they're gonna do is, like I said, they're gonna offer a kingdom. They're gonna offer power. They're gonna offer hope that will counterfeit the hope and the kingdom that Jesus will one day usher in, but it will be false. And so what we'll see in Revelation 13 is that Satan will offer a kingdom that is counterfeit, but Christ's kingdom, we'll see this in Revelation 14, is true. Now why does this matter to us? Why should we talk about the Antichrist if we believe that the church, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, will be raptured at this time? Why do we talk about it? Again, Because there's two reasons uh, we talk about this as we are in the book of Revelation. One, because it's another reminder, Revelation 13 and 14, that Jesus will win. That the kingdom of the Antichrist is is a temporary kingdom. In fact, in Revelation 17, John will say he's going to reign for just an hour. Now, we know it's three and a half years, but in the grand scheme of eternity, it goes like that. Jesus' kingdom will wipe out the kingdom of evil, so that evil has its day, but Jesus has eternity. So we want to remember that as we look at Revelation, but also, also, like I said, the strategies that Satan will use in the end times are the same ones he's always used. They're the same ones that he used in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They're the same ones he used with Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. His strategy is always to lie to us and convince us that there is some other way to find hope and life and meaning and security apart from Jesus, apart from God. So even with Jesus, he comes and he says, you can find power apart from God. You can find security and provision apart from the provision of God. You can can find religion and spirituality, and worship, and a connection to the divine, apart from God. It's the same strategies. Political idolatry, economic idolatry, the worship of money, religious deception, and falsehood. And so we're going to see that, and, and we want to ask ourselves, is my heart susceptible to deception? All of us are. So where is my heart susceptible to deception? Where do I put my hope on a day-to-day basis? In Jesus or some political leader? In Jesus or my 401k? In Jesus or some religious leader who promises something dramatic? Satan's kingdom is always a counterfeit version of what God offers. Christ's kingdom is where true life 
is found. Follow with me, Revelation chapter 13, as we dive into this in more detail. Starting in verse 1, we're going to see Satan's kingdom is counterfeit. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, or crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great Authority. So remember, Satan was cast from heaven to earth uh, toward the end of this tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation. And so now we see the dragon, and he's standing on the seashore. And like a scene from a horror movie, he summons a monstrous beast out of the ocean. Uh, This scene should strike you as a little creepy, as a little scary. It's intended to be. All of us know sea monsters are scary. The ocean is scary. That's why Godzilla movies make a ton of money, because people like to be scared. What is Godzilla? He's a monster from the sea. I'm certain whoever invented or created Godzilla probably had read Revelation 13. So this this scary beast comes from the ocean. In the scripture, the ocean is a place not only of mystery, but also of evil and of death and of darkness quite often. Several years ago, I was on a fishing trip off the coast of Alabama, and uh, the captain of our fishing boat, kind of, we're, we're going around, we're trying to find fish that we can catch, and he's got a little radar or, or sonar or whatever it is that they use under the water uh, to try to figure out where the fish is. And so we're, we're going along, and we're maybe about a couple thousand yards away from the shore where there's a beach, and we look over, and there's all these people in the water on, on you know, kind of different floaties and boogie boards and all this kind of stuff, and some of them are 100 yards away from the shore. And I'll never forget this, this fishing boat captain, he looks at me and he goes, do you know what I call those people? And I said, no, what? And he said, I call them bait. And I was like, are you serious right now? We are in a boat on the ocean. Uh, Are there sharks under there? He goes, oh, there's all kinds of stuff under there. Now, he may have been trying to scare me. It worked. Um, I was relatively terrified. The ocean is beautiful, but the ocean is scary. People go in, people don't come back out in the scripture, and especially in the book of Revelation. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of evil. It's also the realm of the Gentiles. So this leader is portrayed not as a Jew, but as a Gentile leader. Now, he has 10 horns and seven heads. Let me talk about that for just a minute. If you keep your finger in Revelation 13 and go over to Revelation 17, there's actually an explanation of this, of the 10 horns and the seven heads. Daniel, uh, excuse me, John hears from an angel. Verse 9 of chapter 17, it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now, I know you're thinking, that didn't explain nothing. I don't understand this passage any better. Let me, let me walk this through just a little bit. Here's what he says. He says, the seven heads are seven kingdoms, seven kingdoms of history. Five of them are gone. 
One of them is current or contemporary to the time of John the Apostle, and one of them is still to come. The five that have fallen are almost certainly Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. These five powerful kingdoms that had both persecuted the nation of Israel and really had ruled the known world for as long as almost anybody could remember. The one that is in the time of John is is the Roman Empire that is reigning over uh, really the populated world at this time that people are aware of, reigning over all of civilization in a sense. And then there's a kingdom that is to come. That's the kingdom of the beast. Now, the angel says the beast is an eighth one who's one of the seven, probably indicating that he's a whole other type of kingdom, but he comes out of one of these other kingdoms. He comes from one of these other nations, probably uh, from the area of the Roman Empire. Now, the, uh, the ten horns. He says these are ten kings who haven't yet reigned. They're not historical kings, but in the future they will reign together with this beast. They're going to have a kingdom together with this beast, but they're going to reign under him. So the, the Antichrist will, will rule over some sort of confederation of nations, of kings, uh, ten nation federation of some kind. But, but here's what I want you to notice, not to lose the forest for the trees that he represents sort of an amalgamation of all of the evil empires from history. He's sort of all mashed together as sort of containing all the characteristics of the worst leaders, the worst empires, the most bloodthirsty empires in all of history. This is borne out by the description of him as like a leopard and his feet like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. This derives from the description in Daniel 7 of the four beasts that Daniel saw. Daniel says, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and was made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beasts also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten So Daniel describes these four beasts, probably representing Babylon and Persia and Greece and ultimately Rome. But notice when John sees it, it's one beast that mashes them all together. A greatest hits album of the worst possible empires in all of history. One commenter referred to this as an apocalyptic Frankenstein. So this Antichrist emerges and he takes over the world and he rules over this confederation of 10 nations. And then he does something remarkable. Verse three, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? This is an echo of some of the Old Testament praise of God. Who is like 
the Lord Almighty, except it's directed to the Antichrist. So what does he do? Well, he appears to die and then come back to life. And and we're going to see that mentioned several times in this chapter. Now, some people believe this means that this beast, is, this Antichrist, is literally assassinated. He dies, and then he resurrects. He's able to imitate Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, however, uh, others say, well, this is a trick of sorts. It's an illusion. Uh, I tend to land more on that side, which I know if you did read Left Behind, uh, that may be where I depart from Left Behind. I tend to think it's an illusion, and and my reason is twofold. One, the text, interestingly, never actually says that he dies. It says he he is as if he was slain. He had a mortal wound, which was healed, but it never directly tells us that he died. My other reason I think it's a trick is theological, if I'm honest. Only God, I believe, has the power to raise the dead. I think all Satan can do is imitate, is trick, is deceive. And so he does some sort of illusion, seems to come back to life, and everybody begins to worship him. Everybody begins to follow him. And now he's got everybody in his control. And sometimes when I read this passage, it's easy to go, how does this happen? How do people believe this and listen to these lies? I mean, everybody's read about the Antichrist, so how is it when this happens, people aren't like, yep, 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 nope, I'm not following you, right? How does that not happen? Well, desperate people who long to connect with somebody powerful to save them, desperate people who are in desperate times like the tribulation are susceptible to deception. We all are. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of the Cottingley Fairies. The Cottingley Fairies uh, was a a series of photographs that was taken in 1917, just over 100 years ago. Now, photography was still relatively new in the grand scheme of things, but what happened is two little girls in England were playing outside one day, and they decided to have some fun, and they took a series of pictures of themselves with a number of little fairies. Now, Uh, In this day and age, with Photoshop and everything, you go, okay, I I can tell those are fake. Uh, What they are is they're they're just cardboard cutouts. They cut them out of some sort of book and then set them up. But what's crazy is people believed this was real. They believed they had photographed fairies from the spirit realm. In fact, one person who believed it and wrote about it was Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, one of the greatest investigative minds in all of history. And yet he believed in these fairies and wrote about it and supported them. How could people be so gullible? Years, years later, in the 1980s, when these women finally admitted that this was a hoax, one of them said this. She said, it was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand to this day why people were taken in. And then she paused and she said, they wanted to be taken in. They wanted something beyond themselves. And so here in the tribulation, and we see this pattern play out through history, people who want to connect with the transcendent, people who are desperate, people who need a savior, are susceptible to false messiahs. That's just what the Antichrist offers. And by the way, our world and our culture is no less susceptible to it. We're no less susceptible. 
That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Where does our hope come from? If we are inclined to place our hope for the future, our hope for life, our hope for stability in political leaders to save us, then we're susceptible. I I, uh, ran across a survey that was done just this year by Penn State, and they asked people, uh, what makes you feel hopeful or worried about the future? They asked people, how hopeful do you feel? Uh, How worried do you feel? And if you feel hopeful at all, what makes you feel hopeful about the future? This may surprise you. The single most common answer people gave was, I feel hopeful about the future because of politics. A full third of Americans that they surveyed. Now, what was interesting when you dig into the data, uh, Democrats said, I feel hopeful about politics because our people are in office. Republicans said, I feel hopeful about politics because I believe that our people will win in the midterms. And so both groups said, what makes us feel hopeful is we'll have leaders in place who will lead us where we need to go, who will take us to the promised land, who will stabilize the economy, who will put our lives on even footing. That's what the Antichrist capitalizes on. Tim Keller put it this way, it is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into a kind of religion. It's the oldest trick in the book. Find somebody that impresses people and lead people astray. And so this is what the Antichrist does. And once he leads people astray and they begin to worship him, In verse five, John goes on, he says, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Blasphemy is simply to either elevate somebody common as God or to try to reduce God in some way. In this case, he's elevating himself and trying to reduce God, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he must go. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here, or uh, this requires the perseverance and faith of the saints. What he does then is he builds a kingdom where all will begin to worship him. And John says this requires the perseverance and faith of the saints in that age in the tribulation to say, I'm gonna cling to Jesus. But I think John is also saying to every age, watch out, that antichrist might not be here. But as he said in 1 John, many are among us. So be alert, but be focused on Jesus. Be aware, but not afraid, 
and always be aware of the ways in which the enemy deceives. Now there's a new twist, though, in chapter 13. Another beast in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So in some sense, he's imitating Jesus from chapter 1. And he spoke as a dragon. So what comes out of his mouth is satanic. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So now you've got another figure, this beast, not from the sea, but from the earth, a lesser figure. But this is the false prophet. And what he does now is he says, look how great the Antichrist is. He came back to life. He's powerful. He can lead us. And he says, I want everybody now to worship him. And so you end up with a state religion of the Antichrist where everybody is required now to worship him. If they want to stay alive, if they want to be able to buy or sell or eat or drink, which we'll see in a moment. And so what he does is he says, there's your Messiah. And he offers a false Messiah. And then he says, here's how you worship. And he offers a false religious practice rooted in signs and the dramatic and wonders and the promise of all types of good things. And he says, turn to him. And then what he's going to do is also offer a counterfeit security economically. Verse 16, he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So this is the famous mark of the beast and the number of the beast. I'm gonna talk about that in just a moment, but I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. Here's what's going on. Again, Satan says, here's a false Messiah, here's a false religion, here is false security. He plays upon the things that he's always played upon to deceive humanity, including how he tried to deceive and tempt Jesus. He says, okay, you want peace and you want hope. Here's a guy who can bring it to you, a Messiah, a Savior, a King, who will lead you where you want to go. You want religion, sure, we'll throw some religion in there, just worship him. You want security? I can give you economic security. I'll fill up your bank account and pad your 401k. All you gotta do is get the mark on your hand or on your forehead. So what's going on there? Because when I was a kid and in youth group, we watched all of those movies and everything. This terrified me. Uh, If I like went to a party and in order to get back in, they had to stamp your hand. uh, I thought, oh man, have I just really done it to myself, right? Uh, or, you know, those of you who have been to Disney World and you've got to wear the magic band in order to buy stuff and to get in, the magic band is not the mark of the beast, as far as I know. What's going on? 
But we don't know exactly what the mechanism is or the technology is, but this is a false, a counterfeit sort of imitation of what God commands the Jewish people to do in Deuteronomy chapter six. Remember, he tells them, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. It's this statement that we only worship God. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to worship the God, God only with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in fact, those words are so important that I want you to bind them on your hands and on your foreheads. Carry around with you this constant reminder, I will only worship the one true God who made heaven and who made earth and who is our Savior alone. And here in the tribulation, the Antichrist says, no, I want you not to put his name on your hand and your head to put my name. This would require, I believe, an intentional renouncing of Jesus, an agreement to worship the Antichrist and the dragon, Satan. But, but the, the catch is, if you don't, you can't eat, you can't buy, you won't have a house, you won't be able to do anything in the economy. And so he plays upon this economic insecurity. What is the number of the beast? I'm gonna disappoint you this morning. I'm not gonna have any calculations up on the screen. Some people think it is a way of referring to Nero Caesar. Uh, if you take his name in Hebrew and you transliterate it, excuse me, take his name in Greek, transliterate it over to Hebrew, and then add up the values of the Hebrew letters, you can get 666. Uh, in order to do that requires a little bit of clever math, to be honest, but it's possible. I actually think the best theory is simply this, that six is a number that is almost seven. And remember, in the book of Revelation, seven represents perfection. It's the number of God. The number seven comes up over and over and over again. So here you have this number that is almost seven. It looks kind of like it could be seven, but it's not. And there's three of them for this unholy trinity, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. They imitate God's kingdom. They imitate Christ's salvation, but they're not it. So he says, I want you to, to worship this counterfeit kingdom. And again, we see Satan's kingdom is counterfeit. All he does is intensify what he's always done, to trick us into thinking that there's some thing or person we can hope in besides Jesus. That's all he does. He plays upon the fears and the desires of our hearts to lead us astray. And so people follow him then, but, but let's be honest, people are led astray today by political idolatry, economic idolatry, religious counterfeits. And the message of Revelation 13 is, wait, Satan's kingdom is counterfeit. Don't follow those counterfeit gods. Because Christ's kingdom is true. Christ's kingdom is true. If you want hope today, and if you want hope for eternity, the only hope is to trust Jesus. I'm not gonna read all of chapter 14 this morning, but I wanna summarize what happens, what John sees. In chapter 14, right at the beginning, he says, I saw the lamb and he's standing on Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion with him are 144,000. This is the 144,000 that we saw in chapter seven. 
12,000 from each tribe of Israel who have been marked out to trust in Jesus. And I I want you to see in Revelation 14, he says, I saw these 144,000. And what was remarkable about them was that they didn't have the mark of the beast on their hand or on their head. You know what they had? On their forehead was written the name of Jesus and the name of the Father. So instead, these 144,000 in the face of all this pressure, all this chaos, all these judgments, pressure from the government, pressure from the the economy, pressure from the religious system around them, pressure from their neighbors to renounce Jesus and trust in a more visible at the moment sort of salvation and Messiah. In the face of all that pressure, they say, we will not bow. We will not put the beast's mark on our hand and our head. We will write on our Heads, the name of God Almighty and Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so they stand on Mount Zion and they begin to sing praises to God. And John says, oh, these are the ones who have kept themselves pure from the idolatry of their age. These are the ones, and I love this, he says, these are the ones, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They don't follow the Antichrist. They follow the Lamb, Jesus Christ, wherever he goes. Why? Because the Lamb is also the great shepherd who will lead them to green pastures of life forever and ever and ever. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And the idea is simply this. The beast has his day. Jesus has eternity. The Antichrist has his hour. Jesus has forever. Evil has a moment, but God's kingdom never ends. And so like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the face of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built to say, worship me, these 144,000 say, we worship the lamb, and we follow him, and we will not bow, even in the face of death, because there is no other hope for life. And they follow him wherever he goes. And then in the rest of chapter 14, we see three angels that fly through the air. One of them proclaims the eternal gospel. He says, fear God, worship him alone. The second one says, Babylon is about to fall. Babylon is a symbol for the kingdom of the beast. We'll see that more in chapter 17 and 18. And then the third angel says, anybody who follows the beast is gonna be eternally separated from God in the lake of fire. So fear God, so worship God. Even in the midst of this dark tribulation period, we've seen this over and over and over, God is still sending messengers to say, fear God, reject the counterfeit kingdom and turn to the true kingdom. Reject the antichrist's lie and turn to Jesus Christ. Fear God and worship him alone because Jesus died for our sins and Jesus really rose from the dead. We can know that we have eternal life. If you know Jesus Christ, then no matter what type of pressure you may face to trust somebody or something else, even in November 2022, in the face of an election season, John would say, don't put your hope there. Put your hope in Jesus. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes, even when inflation is 50,000% and you're not sure what's gonna happen to your bank accounts. Don't put your hope in how much is there. Put your hope in the kingdom of Jesus. Follow the lamb wherever he goes.
And then right at the end of chapter 14, we see Jesus and a couple of angels, they're reaping the earth, preparing for the judgment of the kingdom of the Antichrist, preparing for the final destruction of Satan himself because his kingdom won't last. Evil has its day. Jesus has eternity. So the bottom line from Revelation chapters 13 and 14 for us is simply this. Because Satan will do those things that he always has done, we have to remind ourselves constantly to reject his counterfeit kingdoms. There is no real kingdom apart from the kingdom of Jesus. There is no lasting security or provision apart from the provision that God gives us. There is no real worship apart from the worship of God. And so John would say, this requires the faith and the perseverance of the saints. Just keep following him. Root your mind and your heart in the word of God so you can recognize the deception and the lies of the enemy as he plays upon the desires of our hearts and the temptations we've always faced. Root your mind and your heart in his word and trust in God. And remember that Jesus wins in the end. Revelation 13 seems like scary stuff, this beast from the sea. But, but it won't be long until we get to Revelation 19 and you see the king riding from heaven. He wins. And in a moment, he's gonna devastate the kingdom of Satan and the beast and his false prophet. Jesus wins. Evil has its day. But Jesus has forever. And so hope in him alone as we wait for him to return. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. How powerful it is to remind us of your truth and how wonderful it is to see that this book that sometimes is hard to understand really is written in the final analysis to give us hope and to give us a deeper faith in you. So we pray that we would seek that and receive that from you this morning. Lord, we pray that we would reject false narratives that tell us that there's hope in political idolatry or economic idolatry or false worship. Pray we would reject the need for people to show and do dramatic things right now for us so we can feel secure but instead we would take the long view that the kingdom of Jesus will last forever. Father, we pray we'd follow him, your son, the lamb, our great shepherd, wherever he goes. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, have a wonderful week.